everyone. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you for understanding why we took another week off. We have it had was a-, <laughs> a couple weeks. Some family stuff It wasn't on. just me and my health this time. It no, was- <laughs> it actually wasn't even you. It was, there was some other family things that we had to deal with. The dog. Our poor dog had to have surgery, emergency surgery, because the neighbor's dog chewed part of her toe off. No, she was degloved. The whole toe was. Have de-gloved. you ever Googled degloved? Don't. <laughs> Her toe was degloved and split from toenail to knuck to the top knuckle, so she had to have stitches and all this other stuff. And they were talking about amputating her toe, and then. Please don't. Yeah, it's been it's been a couple weeks. The poor baby's been in a cone and the cone of shame. The cone of shame. (laughs) She slams into everything. She's on her third week of being in a cone. Hopefully, this is her last week. They (laughs) say she literally slams into everything with that cone, from doors to people. If y'all don't know, we have a great Pyrenees. Her name's Coconut, and she's huge. She's She's, a huge baby. And um, you know, she's not little. So when she walks around the house, she's usually very sneaky, very quiet, never barks. And then all of a sudden you hear a boom, boom, boom. Because <laughs> like her cone gets caught doors. stuck on a doorway or a piece she of furniture. She hasn't learned to gauge. And she doesn't gracefully move it off. She just no, swings she... real hard to get it past it. <laughs> and I as you can imagine with a 90-pound dog, her cone is not a tiny one. No. It's, it's massive. Huge, it's like the biggest size you can get. It's a satellite get. dish. <laughs> it's like, it literally is a satellite dish. It's the biggest cone you can get for a dog. So it's been a journey. And then some other family members have been in the hospital all as well. But um, it's just been a lot. It's been a lot. Lots of hospitals. Preparing for freshman year of college. Yeah, that's. Don't make me cry. I know. I'm not going to. Okay. <laughs> anyway. But thank you so much for being patient with us. Um, we should be back to our regularly scheduled programming. We may have a few. We're working on a few things. We do have a few surprises. A few surprises. Coming up. We're not going to say anything right now, but keep your eyes on Patreon if you're a follower on Patreon. Always love y'all. And then on social media, too, we maybe drop a hint or might just straight up tell you what's going on. I don't know. Yeah, you got to pay attention to find out. I always say only join Patreon if you're ready to be our besties because we're just friends over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anybody that's on there that knows and they reach out and one of us, usually Courtney, but one of us will respond and it turns into a whole conversation. Yeah, we uh, just chill. Yeah, it's not. It's we very chat, chill. Very friendly, chatty over there. Recommendations. Like Talking about anything, whatever. Y'all definitely get first dibs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anything y'all recommend. Like two or three of our Patreon members have given us episodes. Yeah. One of them gave us pictures from... Yeah, um, they supplied our content for us. Uh, Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. A couple other ones have given us stories to do. Yep, absolutely. So definitely head on over there and check it out. And we're on the cheap level, too. We're not the crazy oh, hangout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not on the twenty dollars a month. No. We just do it for fun, and <laughs> yeah, it's just for we fun. use those it's costs a, it's to just a, replace microphones, and that's about all it goes to. <laughs> we go through the microphones. Yeah, this is where I'm like our fifth microphone. I guess I don't know. my I just noticed my microphone cover is covered in dog hair right Mine now. Mine is so. literally covered in dog hair. Yeah, <laughs> coconut. You're excused. You're injured. Yeah, yeah for now. <laughs> but um, so today's story, Pat. I was looking forward to. Talking to you about this one. You keep saying that. I have no idea which one it is. So So I was scrolling on social media mindlessly, as one does. and Probably at three in the morning because that's what you do. (laughs) Probably because I can't sleep. And since it is now the beginning of August, I saw a video, a tribute to the victims of the Texas Tower shootings at University of Texas. 
Have you heard of it, Pat? Why are you looking at me like that? Because I have no idea this is what you were doing. You didn't? Okay. I know more about this damn thing than most people do. Well, good. This was part of when I used to teach civilian law enforcement when I was in the military, when I used to teach them active shooter response. Was, if, if you don't know, if you don't know, Patrick, if you're new here, Patrick is a ex-cop. He's an ex-MP. So he's very well versed on. Well, it's back when I was on the SWAT teams. I used to we used to teach civilian law enforcement active shooter response back in early mid two thousands. We'll get into this, but this whole case was what spawned the development of the SWAT team. It was it was one of the first incidences that led to the development of the entire active shooter process. When you talk yes, about absolutely, it was the Texas one. Mm-hmm. It was the McDonald's massacre. That's why I couldn't wait to tell you this. Then it was the, um, the LA, I knew you'd be into the it. L.A. bank robbery. Yeah. Because that was the first time they used M4s. And then we listened the to the McDonald's. The, the McDonald's. McDonald's um, shooting. Yeah, in, the McDonald's in, shooting. Uh, San no. I think it, no. Um, I, I can't remember, but it was, it was in, in the California. 80s. Yeah, it was in the 80s. In the 80s. Anyways. Well, Patrick, as of August 1st, it has now been officially 57 years since this horrific tragedy. And it, was it got. 76, wasn't it? It wasn't. It was in 66. 66? Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking that I know nothing about the shooter or the story in general, which is a travesty with me being from Texas. I'm trying not to blurt out all the answers right now. I know that you're not from Texas, Patrick. You are a Yankee. But I know way <laughs> too much about this. But you know this. way too much about this. Um, so me being from Texas and not knowing anything about this is absolutely unacceptable. And let me tell you, I did not expect to find out anything that I learned. This is one of those cases where if you think you know the whole story, no, you don't. You you really don't. It's crazy. It's a crazy one for sure. So today, my friends, we will be taking a deep dive into the absolutely shocking case of Charles Whitman Jr., a.k.a. the Texas Tower Sniper. Charles Adolphus Whitman Jr. What a name, eh? Adolphus. Just go. I'm ready for this thing. Or Charlie, as he was called, was born on June 24th, 1941, to Charles Sr. and Margaret Whitman in Lake Worth, Florida. The couple would go on to have two more sons named Patrick and John. Charles Sr. did leave most of his child rearing to his wife, Margaret, and she loved this role. Like, she didn't complain. And it was the time, it was the times, right? Oh, was, absolutely. What was this, like the 40s or 30s he was born? Exactly. We'll get we'll get into that. Well, Charles Sr., he was super hardworking. He was a no-nonsense kind of guy. He ended I feel, up- I feel like every parent in the 30s, 40s, 50s time frame- No was nonsense. Like no nonsense, hardworking parent. <laughs> like, they're well, all classified I will way. tell you, Charles Sr. took that to the next level. <laughs> We see that a lot with these. We do. We don't always we? talk about how the, the parent was a hardworking that in that you know the first half of the century, the 1900s, yeah. and then it's it's always the ones that were extreme in it that we talk about on these cases that their children ended up. It there's always else. a line. You I know, know I'm rambling, and our one listener that made the comment that hates that I ramble is going to be mad at me right now. Well, shouldn't have to listen because <laughs> <laughs> I I get a lot of people that only listen for you, so it's okay. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, I just like to troll the, the negative comments, but without them, of course, I love them still. So, so Charles Senior owned a plumbing contracting company, 
and he really had brought his family out of abject poverty. So he definitely has that going for him. You know, I mean, if you think about it, he survived the Great Depression. You know, I know my grandmother did as well. So they had a lot to be a little bitter about. Yeah, and Normie was the I'm not making time. excuses, you know. But he, like a lot of men of the time, held very traditional values, like you were saying, Pat. His wife, Margaret, was um, supposed to stay home and raise the children. And when she stepped out of line, Charles Sr. had absolutely zero qualms about beating her or his children, especially Charlie. He was the oldest, after all. Of course. He was the firstborn, the the male heir, if you will. And Charles Sr. demanded nothing less than greatness and perfection. You will get very tired of me hearing greatness, or of y'all hearing greatness and perfection by the end of this episode, I promise. So this is one of those parents that that during the time was super hard, right? Had no qualms physically putting people in line in his eyes. And it was his firstborn male son. So they get it the hardest. They don't get to be kids. And they're demanded to be. Perfect. Perfect. You know, I equate that to kind of my uncle. (gasps) Very true. Who, you know, had a nervous breakdown at 40 something because he was the crown jewel of the the four brothers. It's very brave of you to share. Yes. Eventually went, literally went insane. I've heard that story. And yeah. And there's nothing against my grandparents, but he was the. It was the same time period. He was the first. There was a lot of pressure of put four. on him. Yeah, everything was put on him. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, a heavy cross to bear, so to speak. That you don't choose. That you don't choose. Yeah, for sure. Yes, especially for a child. That's what I mean. The child doesn't choose to be the firstborn. Right. In fact, Sar- uh, Charles Senior was such a hard ass, quote unquote. I don't know how else to say it. I guess you could say that Margaret would have to sneak around behind her husband's back to show her boys affection because that was just something that senior wouldn't stand for. No, you got to toughen them up. You can't show them love and make them soft. Yeah, and Margaret loved her babies. She wanted to cuddle them and kiss on them. Most mothers want to love and cuddle and hug on their babies. Exactly. Of all the Whitman boys, little Charlie was the one who was dead set on proving himself to his father. He was desperately wanting to make his dad proud. Like that was his goal in life. That's how he was raised that he has to live up to standards for his father. It's just funny because I don't know if the I don't know much about the other boys, but yeah, definitely Charlie felt that pressure and that's, as that's the, the oldest. the pressure as the oldest and they mm-hmm. want to live up. They want to make their parents proud. They want to make their dad proud. You know what I mean? And that is why Charles Sr. chose to teach little Charlie to hunt as soon as he was old enough to support a rifle with his little arms. <laughs> yeah, and that's very common. That's especially very back common. In the day and especially yeah. depending on where they're living, if they're out in the country, that is just... They go horrible. hunting. <laughs> Even nowadays, when you're out in the country and you live out there, when you, your kid's old enough to hold a rifle, you Char- take hunting. Charlie was an expert shot from a very young age, and he gladly went along on hunting trips with his dad to show off his skills, despite having very little enjoyment for killing animals, which I found interesting because, you know, we all know what happens at the, the end. Trend, yeah. But um, he didn't like to kill the deer. He thought they were cute, you know, And but he wanted to. He wasn't one of those kids that escalates from killing animals. He wanted, yeah, he was not. I will say that this is one that I think was not born evil. If that makes, and that's my opinion. Yeah, and we'll see. We always talk about definitely that for, people. If you've never heard us talk about it before. We always kind of debate yeah. when we talk about. I have a lot killers, of about spoil- born versus 
spoiler alert, we have a lot of science at the end. Okay. That you're going to be fascinated. Yeah, we always talk about being born evil versus nature versus nurture, right? Being born evil or becoming evil because of your environment. Right, absolutely. He's definitely not fitting the born evil type. But I can see why he wants to go hunting because that's how he can make his dad impressed, right? He's going to be perfect. He's so good of a shot, his dad knows. like He'll be proud of him that he doesn't miss kind of thing. Charlie was an expert shot from a very young age. And he gladly went along on hunting trips with his dad to show off his skills, despite having very little enjoyment for killing these animals. And we're going to dive deep into that little later. You're going to see just how good of a shot he was. I mean, he was, he received accolades for it. Oh, I know. Well, Charlie's mother also insisted that he take piano lessons, and Charlie was expected to practice daily before he was allowed outside to play with his friends, which, very fair, right? Rules are rules. Do your homework, do your chores, and play. (laughs) Exactly. However, it was different for Charlie. Charles Sr. kept his belt on top of the piano, and every time his son missed a note or a chord, he would beat his son with it. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's just one example. There's lots more, but I'm just kind of trying to give you a taste. Yeah, no, yeah, I can do. Charlie was determined to be great, and that extended to his schooling. And I'd say he had the smarts for it. Charlie tested in the top percentile of intelligence with an IQ of 138, which is genius level, in fact. Not only did he maintain pristine grades, all throughout grade school and high school, he also committed to a very full extracurricular schedule. Get this. At the age of 12, Pat, he became the youngest Eagle Scout in history thanks to his expert rifle skills. All right. Yeah, that's insane. 12 years old. <laughs> in high school, he joined the baseball team, and of course, he was their star pitcher. He would go on to win the God and Country Award, which I'm not quite sure what that is, but apparently it was the only accolade he ever received that ever made his father smile, so it must have been fabulous. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty high up. Sounds very Texas. So, (laughs) and he's not Texas. He's, well, he's Florida, so. I know, but the God and Country Award sounds very Texas. So all in all, Charlie was determined to achieve perfection, and he was doing a damn good job at it. I mean, it seems like he's doing pretty good. Like the youngest Eagle Scout, the God and Country Award, star pitcher, smartest kid in his class. But as we all know, you can only put so much pressure on yourself before you crack. Yep. Right? Breaks. As a teenager, Charlie started to experience internalized anger. Oh, he, he couldn't show it, right? He can't show he probably, it. He's exhausted, probably, and frustrated. Well, trying to he put probably on watches his mama being knocked around a lot at home, and he sure as hell isn't going to challenge his dad about it. You can't. I, he's striving for all this perfection and doing all these things that he probably doesn't even enjoy half of it. He's right. just doing it for, for his dad's approval. And although hunting and the shooting range was an outlet for him. Hell yeah, it is. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him. A hell of an outlet. Not for this kind of person. No, not no. At this age, he had enough experience with the outside world to see that the life that he was living at home isn't the way that a child is meant to live. A week before his 18th birthday, it all came to a head. 
when Charlie went to a party and had a bit too much to drink, as a lot of teenagers do. What? No. <laughs> well, Charlie came stumbling home. He was a bit drunk. Well, if he's stumbling, I hope he's drunk. <laughs> he was hoping to sneak inside the back of the house, but instead he was greeted by his father sitting out by the side of their pool in a deck chair. Charles Sr. nearly beat his son to death that night. During the beating, Charlie lost consciousness and fell into the pool. Instead of his father pulling his son out of the water, he just left him there to drown. Didn't care what happened to him whatsoever. And here we have a head injury. Right. It was only by his own self-preservation that Charlie came to, you know, before he died. Good goodness. He was, all of his brothers had seen the beating and his mother too, but no one dared cross Charles Sr. Well, they probably saw what he just did and were like, I'm not getting that. But no, you, you'll die with him. I'm, I'll be in the pool with yeah. the man. He was able to pull himself out of the pool to safety. However, this was just the last straw for Charlie. Uh, yeah, I would say so. If my father had beaten me into a unconscious into the pool and left me to drown, yeah. probably the last straw for me too. Despite his father's plans to groom his eldest son to take over his business one day, Charlie wanted no part of it. No, you don't say? It's crazy. He signed up for the U.S. Marine Corps and left for Paris Island on July 6, 1959. As soon as his father found out, he was on the phone to his network of powerful contacts trying to convince anyone who would listen. And I guess the U.S. government, you know, that's who would listen. He was trying to tell him that his son Charlie was not fit for duty. However, when the Marine Corps has your signature, you belong to them. That and he's saying he's not fit for duty, but the kid's got like the top IQ in his grade. He's the youngest and no Eagle record. Scout. He's got no all record. these awards. Like he has no record. Yeah, I mean, how he's is good. he not fit for duty, guy? Like whatever. You're just a mad dad that doesn't want their kid to join the military. And let me tell you guys, Charlie was an amazing soldier. He was used. He was used to following orders and striving for perfection so the marines was just like a holiday to him yeah, and he was a, he was a boy scout eagle scout and all that stuff so yeah. it wasn't like he wasn't afraid to be outdoors and camping right. and stuff according to the book the texas tower sniper by none other than ryan green charlie excelled in literally every aspect of his training he was in the top percentile for every test to include marksmanship during the marksmanship test, out of a maximum of 215 points, Charlie came in at a whopping 205, which is not too shabby. I don't think. What do you think about that? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, know what that means, but. You're, you're asking me a question and I'm biased because I don't know what they're scoring on, right? So I couldn't tell you. I do know that the Marine Corps. A target? Yeah, they're harder. Well, they're, they're I'll put it to you this way. In the Army, our rifle marksmanship every mm-hmm. time we do it. Every quarter or whatever it was, was like a week. Mm-hmm. The Marine Corps is 30 days. And it's almost 30 days before you even touch a, you actually fire a real round. Oh. So, I mean, it's extensive how much they pride themselves on their marksmanship. Mm. Like, I'm talking about the fundamentals of each part of the gun, the green bullet, how it travels, how trigger pull, sight picture. I mean, they are detailed and rigorous on their training on it. I would, can you imagine me doing that? <laughs> 
But no. can you put the gun in my hand in the army, and we, set it up? In the army, we go over a class, we do some dry firing, and then we go to the range and shoot rounds. That's army. And then we yell at you because you can't hit the target. <laughs> and then we go up to the thing, and if you failed it nine times, I go up there with my skillcraft ballpoint pen and stab the thing like four times so you can pass. Oh, Jesus, Patrick. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Everybody in the army out there will know what I'm talking about. Skillcraft. Only ones that work. Okay. Okie dokie. <laughs> so the Marines were so impressed with Charlie that they wanted to eventually make 18-year-old Charlie an officer. But with only a high school education, that just wasn't possible, right? You need a degree. You need some schooling. It was college or a college degree. I don't know what it was back then, but now it's a college degree. After breezing through officer training school, which he did, took a while, but he did, the Marine Corps offered to pay for a university education for Charlie. And it was a an offer that Charlie readily accepted. Yeah. Charlie selected out of some options the University of Texas in Austin. They had a program there that um, he could study engineering, mechanical engineering, a skill set that he felt would serve him well as a future officer. Interesting that he chose UT for that. Why is that? I mean, I don't know what the list he had was, but if you're going to go to engineering I, in the state was, of Texas, it's A&M. I think there was one in, was A&M around? Yeah, A&M. A&M's around. But I don't just, know if that was on his list. Though. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if it was on his yeah. list, but typically you hear about engineering in Texas, everyone goes to A&M. UT has everything and it's a good school, but it's typically not your engineering school. So Charlie spent his childhood trying to make his father proud, right? Right. His goal now was to make the Marine Corps proud. He had a new daddy. Yeah, basically. He had someone else to prove. <laughs> I mean, that's my take on it, by yeah, the no, way. It's, it's, it is, it is. He it's had a new person take. to prove that he was perfect. I always am seeing Charlie needing somebody to please. Well, he grew up with chasing approval. Right. From his dad. So he's always going to be chasing approval from other people mm-hmm. after that. So the Marine Corps is his new daddy yeah. right now. So off to Texas, he went to do just that. I don't know if you have ever been to UT Austin, Patrick, but it's impressive. It's insane. It's insane. And it was impressive back in the 60s. Its tower was iconic. Yeah. Well, of course. It's set on a sprawling 40 acres. The campus contains beautiful buildings, museums, research labs, a mall, swimming pools. It was a separate city all in itself. And for those that don't know, it is not near Austin. It is literally in the middle of Austin. Yeah. It is in the, it is a section of the city is in itself of itself. And in the center of the center <laughs> of this vastness was an architectural structure unlike anything that Charlie had ever seen before or really many people have ever seen before. Especially back then it was. It was the Texas Tower, also known as the Main Building. It's a gorgeous, a lot of people say that it's um, a gothic. It's not, it's not gothic. It does have that kind it's of feel a, to it. It's not though. It's a Spanish colonial stone structure that stands 307 feet high, 27 floors. It's actually 29 floors. You can only reach the 29th by stairs though. It was built in 1934 and you can still see it. Today, if you go there, it's still standing. It's breathtaking. Yeah, it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. More on this tower later, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll get back there. But at that time, 
more than 50,000 students and faculty were spread out over that whole 40 acres. And it was a whole new, exciting world for Charlie. He had never seen anything like that before. And he immersed himself in it all. Once again, Charlie overloaded himself with all the extracurricular activities. We're talking, he was in the scuba diving club. Didn't even know there was such a thing in college. In the center of Texas? We have lakes and stuff. I know, know, but still, (laughs) like, it always amazes me when people have scuba diving clubs in, like, the middle of Oklahoma. It's like, okay. He, of course, was in a hunting club. He mastered karate. Why not? I want to say he even went up to a black belt. I mean, he's nuts. All while keeping up with his studies and maintaining some semblance of a social life. He was in it all and doing well in it all. Look, he has everything else that he's really Mm -hmm. done. And it was here that Charlie met Kathleen Leisner, otherwise known as Kathy. She was a trainee school teacher a couple of years younger than him. And he was absolutely everything he could ask for in a partner. And she is very beautiful if you look up pictures of her. Someone that he would be proud to introduce to his mother someday. Although Kathy was Charlie's first real relationship, they were both absolutely smitten with each other. And things started to move rather quickly. Soon, Charlie was proposing to Kathy. And in August of 1962... Charlie and Kathy were married. Dang, okay. I'd like to note that Charlie's mother, father, and brothers did in fact attend the wedding. However, and I don't know why I found this funny, Charles Sr. demanded that they leave early and not attend the reception. (laughs) Like, that's enough with all the stress. (laughs) He's probably still pissed off about the Marines. Yeah, he's like, fuck him, he's in the Marines. I don't like her. Well, Charlie and Kathy settled into married life. And like everything else in Charlie's life, he committed himself to being the greatest husband on the face of the earth. Yep, needed her approval now. Yeah, exactly. New daddy, right? Yeah. He wanted to be better to Kathy than his father had been to his mother. Oh, I'm sure. He's well, it's like, a great goal. He's going to be the polar opposite. Fabulous the loving, goal. caring, yeah. like, sensitive husband. And he put a level of demand on himself that just created more stress in his life, I think. Probably. This dude sounds like a dude that just Don't get me wrong. It's a good goal to have to be your best self to your spouse, right? Just in general, but yeah, absolutely to your spouse. But I think that Charlie was just going through the motions of married life and treating it much like like his other endeavors. Like a task. Yeah, just like like the Marines... Like being a child to impress his dad. And it's a task. It's just another, yeah, chore. Yeah. Really strange. Well, he committed himself to walking Kathy to and from every single class. That's a full schedule. <laughs> like he not only has to keep up with his schedule, but also walk Kathy to and from all Which of her at classes. At times, I'm sure he had to run from dropping her off to get yeah. his class to make yeah, it Yeah, that's time. a lot. Yeah. And um, keeping... He also committed to keeping a full social calendar for them, you know, because they have to have fun, right? So he had, like, dinner parties that he helped her organize. And, I mean, it's a lot. This dude's dude's busy. He even took on some odd jobs so he could afford to shower her with gifts. 
I mean, I can't fault the dude. He's trying to do everything right. He's trying at this point, right? Yeah. yeah. However, it wasn't long before Charlie found that his grades were slipping. Yeah, he's doing too Obviously. much Obviously, yeah, yeah, he's too busy trying to With be so married. Much to go around. And in Charlie's mind, if he was disappointing the Marine Corps, who was so graciously footing the bill for his university education, he was failing. He was failing another daddy, exactly. right? Yeah. And as a failure, he felt he was undeserving of Kathy. Oh, he's one of those guys. He's one of those guys. And again, I'm not making excuses for this joke of a dude. I mean, no, but, but you're seeing the he needed some developed. help, right? You're, you're we're we're just kind developed. of analyzing the the development right. here, and you're seeing the holes, and you're seeing the buildup of yeah. What probably becomes a potential breaking point, right? You're, you're seeing those things start to build because he's putting so much on himself that is un, it's it's unhuman, inhuman. It's not realistic. It's one of those things. He felt that he was undeserving of all of it, the education, his marriage, all of it. Um, he felt like an imposter. I'm sure there was a lot of imposter syndrome going around, to be quite frank. And this led Charlie down into a spiral of depression. At the end of the semester, he received a letter from the Marine Corps telling him that he needed to return to active duty since his grades we're not up to par. Right. Which happens, right? Yeah. Well, they're paying the bill. They want you to keep it. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to go put you to work somewhere else. He was devastated. However, Kathy, now a teacher, reassured him that she would be right here waiting for him when he returned. And once again, he felt so undeserving of her. But as you know, when Uncle Sam calls, you answer. You don't, <laughs> you don't have much of a yeah, choice. You ain't got a choice. But... That was just it. He just, she kept reassuring him, like, I love you. I'm here no matter what. Yeah, and don't he worry was about like, it. it's okay. I, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not a failure. worth uh. it. Yeah, exactly. So off to Camp Lejeune Ugh. in North Carolina, <laughs> Charlie what went, bastard. Why do you say you? Camp Lejeune's a rough place, man. You've been there? I've been there. I know about it. It's not, it's not where you want a vacation? Not really. <laughs> okay. They train hard there. Oh, do they? Oh, that's why. Okay. It's like 29 Palms. It's not a luxury resort. Well, this time he went there with a considerable bit less enthusiasm than when he had when he first enlisted, if you can oh, imagine. Yeah. He just had, he, he, yeah. On top of that, when you're in the military and you go live the civilian life for a while, mm-hmm. much like I did as a recruiter, it's I couldn't go back to the military life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just didn't want to. It's really hard to transition from you. You get you custom to the military and everything's away and you just deal yeah. with it. Yeah. Then you go live a civilian again and you're back on your terms, basically just living your life. And then you have to go back to the military style. A lot of people, it's like, what the f- I can't do this shit. We, we can't fault him for that because. And then he also feels like a disappointment. For a while, you came back as a recruiter and you had an option to go back. I'm not going to say active duty. It was heavily active duty. And I was like, I, I can't do that. <laughs> And you're like, I can't either. And we just didn't. (laughs) I was enjoying being a civilian. I was enjoying civilian life. Yeah. Well, Charlie was no longer, he was a bit different. He was no longer the go-getter office material, officer material. Sorry. He also feels like a failure right now. So he doesn't feel like he's deserving of this stuff. He was going through the motions. He was no longer the officer material 18-year-old soldier that... He once had been. Now he was just kind of 
putting one foot in front of the other and doing his time, so to speak. Yeah, he's just serving out his sentence at this point. Exactly. It's funny you said that. Wait till you see what happens. So it was said that on most days, Charlie struggled just to be average, even in shooting. Like, he just didn't give a flying flip or rooney. He didn't care. He didn't care. He just wanted to go home and be with Kathy. Like, I'll just do know? enough to get by. Yeah. So he just wanted to get through it and get back to Austin, be with his wife. However, Charlie's innate nature to be excellent shined through here and there. Just here and there, you got peaks of it. One day, while out on patrol, the Marine driving their Jeep misjudged a corner, and the Jeep went off into a ditch, flipping the vehicle. No bueno, right? Well, both Charlie and his fellow Marine were knocked out cold and badly injured. Second hit injury. However, Charlie came to and dragged his fellow soldier to the side of the road where he was able to flag down a vehicle for help. When he woke up in the infirmary several days later, Charlie had been informed that he had been promoted to Lance Corporal for his heroic actions. You think that this would have maybe elevated his self-esteem, but no. He felt like an imposter mm-hmm. once again. Like, I don't More imposter that. syndrome. I don't deserve that. Whether or not those negative emotions had any impact on what happened next is up for debate. But what we do know is that Charlie liked to blow off some steam on the base by gambling. Okay. Now, gambling, technically, Patrick, from what I've learned, is not allowed on base. But it was said that the officers knew it was going on here and there, and they just kind of turned the other cheek as long as it stayed friendly. Right. So technically, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it's mm-hmm. illegal, mm-hmm. Which, is the, which is the military laws. But things like that that aren't hurting anybody, as long as they stay friendly— most units or most officers or senior non-commissioned officers, as long they think they look at it as it's good for morale. Well, yeah, like Let the we're kids betting on a horse scene. race or a football game. They're having right? fun. They're playing cards yeah. for some money. They're having a good time. It's only only when it grows goes bad do they look at it bad. Right, exactly. And I can see that. Well, in November of 1963, some random soldier owed for a while. He owed Charlie about three hundred bucks. It's a lot of money back then. Yeah, it was. Charlie was never the confrontational type, ever. Every time Charlie asked the guy to pay up, the guy laughed it off because it was just Charlie. He was like this big dude, just like, Shut up. Whatever. I'm yeah. not paying your dumbass. He fought, and Charlie was one to follow the rules for the most part, you know, so it's like, whatever. Yeah, old Charlie ain't going to do nothing. Exactly. Charlie was fed up. He was kind of toying with the idea of being the bad guy at this point. So he cornered this guy. And then he pulled out a pistol and held it to the guy's head. A non-regulated pistol, by the way, on base. Which I know is a no-no. Non-regulated? The pistol was a weapon from Charlie's own personal collection at home. And it was a big no-no to have that on base. Yeah, you can't have firearms on base. I don't know about back then, but even now, if you do and your author, your commander has to authorize you mm-hmm. to have it, and even then it has to be stored in your unit's arms room. Right. It can't be kept in your bed, in your barracks, nothing like that. So Charlie was court-martialed 
for that offense. He was, of course, found guilty of possessing an unauthorized weapon on base, as well as he also had two rounds of M14 ammunition that he had been carrying around in his pocket for, like, a keepsake. Okay. Yeah, it was, like, a keepsake thing. Yeah, that's that's a big no-no. I have no idea, but whatever. For his crimes, he was demoted back to private. Yeah, demoted to E1. Loss of pay. And sentenced to 30 days confinement and another 90 days hardly. So he, yeah, he was court-martialed. Essentially, it's the next step above Article 15, which is a punishment, which they can take pay. They can take, restrict you from leaving base. They can take rank. They did all that. The hard labor thing is different. I didn't, I've never heard them punish somebody with hard labor and prison time. Well, some Marines. And I know people that did time in the brig in Camp Lejeune. It's not a nice place. And by the time his sentence was served, he was done with the military for good. He was like, yeah, I'm done. Well, it, by the time his sentence is over, he's going to get a dishonorable discharge. Mm-hmm. No. No? And in 1964, he received an honorable discharge from the Marines and caught the first train he could back to Texas. Okay. Maybe yeah. because he served his sentence with no problems, they just gave no, him No, he honorable. did. Good behavior. Normally, they would get, if you get court-martialed like that, they're going to put you out of other than honorable or dishonorable, which you can get upgraded back to honorable later. No, I think that since he was he just served a sentence demoted was, to private, yeah. that meant he could stay in. He was like, okay, I'm private, but I choose to get out. And Well, no, because you're not out until your sentence is over. That's how they keep you in a military prison. They just demote you so you don't. Oh, okay. Like if I was to kick you out, I don't had it's been a while, I can't remember, but I don't think they can send you to a military prison. Well, he caught an honorable discharge. It's the times, too. Yeah. They probably had a lot of other people that they were going after, like AWOLs and deserters, because of 65 yeah. was what, right before the Vietnam War or the start of it? Kathy and Charlie settled right back into married life once he came back. Good. They rented a little brick house in a suburb of Austin where Charlie was quick to make friends in the neighborhood. Of course, he's got to get the social calendar filled up. He even became a scout master. I assume, like, with the Boy Scouts? Yeah. Yeah. And the kids adored him. They thought he was the coolest guy oh, ever. I mean, your scout master, new scout master comes in, and he's an ex-Marine. And he has an expert shot. And he was the youngest Eagle Scout in history. Like, yeah. That's a cool scout master. That's a cool, a cool guy. Yeah, that's yeah, like the sure. dude. Like, yeah, he's an ex-Marine. Oh, my gosh. But not everything was sunny in Charlie's life. Kathy, now a high school biology teacher at a nearby high school, was the sole breadwinner for the family, something that went against Charlie's nature, you know? Well, he was raised that mom stays at home and yeah. raises the kids and he works. Still having goals, Charlie decided to re-enroll in college, but without the Marines paying for school, it would have just been impossible for the couple to afford at the time. College is expensive. We know. We're (laughs) paying for two to go right now. (laughs) I just wanted to throw that in there because it sucks. Insane. So, Patrick, Charlie did something crazy. He swallowed his pride and did something that he never in his whole life thought he would do. He called his dad and asked him for money for college. Wow. His father, who he hadn't spoken to in years. 
It had been years since they had last spoken. That's got to be hard because then he's got to tell him he got kicked out of the army. And as we know, Charlie is very prideful. Yeah. Of course. But his father readily agreed to help out, which Charlie knew he would because his father would never miss the opportunity to have someone indebted to him. And hold it over his head, I was going to say. hold it over his head. And with that, he slipped right back into taking classes at the University of Texas at Austin. Aside from school, Charlie worked part-time to help make ends meet. And for a time, all was well. That is, until he had gotten a phone call from his mother in Florida. After suffering years and years of abuse at the hand of Charles Sr., Margaret Whitman was ready to leave her husband. Oh. And it was really thanks to Charlie. Charlie had been talking to Margaret about how this is not acceptable. Like you need to just get out, Mom. You need to get out. Fuck like that. Get you're out. worth more. Yeah, absolutely. That's what's insane. Like, he really coerced his mother into leaving this abusive man. I don't think that's insane. I think that's a normal reaction. I know, but then to do what he, you know, did... That's why, that's why I think he snapped at some point. But It was Charlie that she turned to for help. Without a second thought, Charlie drove to Florida to pick up his mother, and he brought her back with him to Austin and set her up in a small apartment near him in Austin and got her a job as a cafeteria worker. So she now had a job. She was working. She okay. got to hang out with kids. She loved kids. Like, Probably she was living the dream right now. Right? Was it at his wife's school? Probably. I mean, maybe. That's what I was. I don't assume. know. I didn't. It was across. It was like across a lake. I don't know if it was like Travis or whatever, but there's a bunch of lakes over there. I know. It was right across the lake from their house. Oh, okay. So it was super close. Now, with the weight of caring for his wife and now his mother, he was financially responsible for. Keeping up with his grades in school, working several part-time jobs to keep everyone afloat, and also being a scout leader, Charlie began to once again cave. Yeah, he was overextending himself. Under the pressure. (laughs) Only this time, the stress began to manifest itself in the form of horrific headaches. He began to suffer from insomnia. He was unable to eat. Eventually, Charlie went to see the campus doctor about his state of exhaustion. Very typical of the day, the 60s. The doctor prescribed him... LSD? Dexedrine. Oh. Which is basically amphetamines. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Here's some, here's some cocaine. I can't sleep. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Here's some coke. This will keep you up. As you can imagine, this only served to increase Charlie's... Mania. He was basically on like he's on a, meth. He's, he's he's on an upper. If he's already manic, he's upper on manic. On an upper as manic. That's just woof. Friends of his, like in their circle, noticed that Charlie was now just a shadow of a man. Larry, a guy who was one of Charlie and Kathy's close friends, urged Charlie to go and see the campus psychologist. But Charlie felt that he didn't need some doctor knowing his private business, so that appointment was never made. Of course. Oh, that's too manly to go see someone's prideful, I should say. 
like everyone else in his life, Charlie thought that he could master his declining emotional and mental state. He figured that the source of his stress and anxiety had come just from a lack of organization. I think we all go there, you know? Like, okay, I don't have... No, I'm just leaning forward. I'm like, lack of organization of all the too much shit you're doing? Yeah. yeah. So let's just rebucket all the extra shit I'm doing and not take some stuff away. Well, so Charlie pulled out an old typewriter and he began to type vigorously. He began to effectively make lists upon lists and construct a framework for success. And he would spend hours a day doing so. He's hypermanic. He's beyond manic. Yeah. According to author Ryan Green, he said it best, quote, Every day he would type out thoughts to start the day, a list of improvements to his daily attitude and interactions that he believed could remedy the situation, stop procrastinating, grasp the nettle, control your anger, don't let it prove you a fool, smile, it's contagious. (laughs) Like, what the heck? I don't know. I mean, I almost want to give him credit for like thinking he. No, I mean, he's he's really trying trying to fix himself. He's just unable to. Don't be belligerent. Stop cursing. Improve your vocabulary. (laughs) Like, actually, look up words. (laughs) Do more. Do more more tasks for you to do. Approach a pot of gold with exceptional caution. Look it over twice. Pay that compliment. Listen more than you speak. Listen before you speak. Control your passion. Don't let it lead you. Don't let it desire make your make you regret your present actions later. It's kind of gibberish, but it, it's it's kind of rambling. Yeah, but I mean, you can tell there's good intentions behind it. Yeah, that's I, what I mean, feel. you can tell. I'm not listen. I know he's a monster. I know. But, but you can tell you can tell kind of two things from all that to me, and that it's he's really trying. He's trying, but right there now. also tells yeah. me he has no grasp, zero grasp on reality I, whatsoever. I wanted to say reality, but I just don't think he has a grasp on anything. The anything. situation, he has reality no grasp. itself. But he's trying to act like he does, and he's trying to control it. But he's literally controlling nothing because he has no control of anything right now. Yeah. God, let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> Get help if you need it. That's crazy. Don't be too proud. You need help. Everyone needs help at some point. Because he actually started out with very good intentions, you know? He started out as a rock star. I yeah. Mean, he's in the Marines. He's all these other things he did before that. No, he's but he college. tried to follow. And he And he's, he's trying, trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Anyways. Now, what Charlie is experiencing right now, Patrick, with all of the typing and writing is actually a symptom of a much bigger issue. Uh-huh. Which we know. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Well, it's actually called hypergraphia or uh, graphomania. It's an obsessive, uncontrollable impulse to write. It's a symptom associated with um, temporal lobe changes. He had two head injuries. A topic that we will touch on later. We always touch on that because it always shows up. Every time. <laughs> Unofficial <laughs> evil pudding podcast theory 
95% of the, the serial killers and murderers we have covered, there is a head injury or head trauma in their life that causes some sort of change in their behavior, their thought process, their reality, disassociation, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So don't think just because you're a list maker that you have this condition. No, because no. I, too, am a... You're like, a little list maker. I'm, oh, God. You, you know don't me. do shit without I mean, a list. No, I don't, do, I don't move without a list. I'm not saying this. Um, Charlie's, he took list making to a whole new level. Like, his house was floor-to-ceiling writing. It was journaling. It was It was just like he had to put it everywhere as a reminder. He was organizing his thoughts on how to fix himself and how to yeah. do things, but he's just beyond a normal person. It was a compulsion or an impulse that was truly affecting him. And according to... It's an Ryan, obsession, yeah. And according to Daddy Ryan Green, Charlie would never recognize that impulse as a driving force of his own life, it was unmistakable in the endless notation that he left in his wake. It's a condition often associated with frontal lobe epilepsy, but it can be triggered by a variety of causes, ranging from the ingestion of chemicals that affect the brain, such as dexedrine, such as what he was prescribed by the psychologist <laughs> or the doctor, yeah. To traumatic head injuries. Which he had two of because his dad knocked him out and almost drowned him and then he was in a car wreck. Of the sort that Charlie suffered at the hands of his father in childhood. And, and when he was in the Marines. Yeah. Now, I'm unsure if Kathy witnessed her husband's behavior. Demise? Downfall? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I don't know what word to classify. Uh, or show concern. Or if this was, you know, kind of on Charlie's own accord. But either way, Charlie did get to eventually see a psychiatrist. She may have looked at it like he was quirky. You need like, to go and see a psychiatrist. And that's why he went. Or he, it could have been that. Or she may have also just looked at it like he's quirky like this already. He's mm-hmm. always been kind of an overdoer. So he's just overdoing you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. She may have not thought it was that big of a change for him. I, or she said, go take your ass to a shrink or I'm leaving. We don't know. I believe she prob. this is my personal belief, but I personally believe, because we don't have anyone to ask, that she said, Charlie, get your ass to a psychiatrist or I'm leaving because you're weird. Well, like, and, I, and I can test as a husband. It's too prideful a lot of times to go to like a doctor or a shrink mm-hmm. that when you're like, you need to fucking go. Yeah. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> like, you're like the voice of, the wife is very often the voice of reason in those situations. So it's very possible that she was like, you need to go seek help. Well, for whatever reason, Charlie did go in to see a psychiatrist, at least for a while. Did they give him crack? So that's good. Your I know heroin. back in the 60s. Well, Dr. Maurice Heatley would later say that in their section, uh, sections, oh, sessions, quote, Charlie was a massive, muscular youth oozing with hostility, end quote. You know, I, d- I don't get that, but. I don't, you know what it is? I don't like that because it's a nonsensical quote. Mm-hmm. Because that's some fucking shrink that probably made a shit ton of money off the massacre. Because he was the last shrink or the only shrink that this guy saw. 
So he probably wrote a book that had a whole bunch of bullshit in it, like a muscular, muscular oozing. The fuck does that even mean? I don't know. He, we hear some more, but but that's yeah. what he sounds like already as a guy that made his dime off of this incident because he was the shrink he saw. Clearly, you fucking shouldn't because you didn't do your job. Well, you didn't help the man. We're just gonna put those feelings aside for now <laughs> and say, okay, Sorry. you're the last doctor Sorry. that that saw him, right? I, it's a pet peeve of mine when serial killers or just general people go killing or go or, or snap. You're going to get more mad in and, a, in and a the minute. doctors are like the last doctor they saw was like, Oh, I saw this coming. Like why the fuck didn't but you do anything? You're about to get more mad. So save the anger. Oh, don't make me angry. Okay. Dr. Heatley also noted that Charlie was un, unable to maintain control over his temper and his actions. The doctor was of the opinion that his parents recent separation you know, because his mom moved here and all. Yeah, yeah. Was a trigger for his current situation. Although, Charlie felt like that was just, you know, a bunch of crap, hocus pocus, like, you know, women shit. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, just I, don't, I don't see the separation as a trigger. And get this. Get this. Charlie told Dr. Heatley and I'm directly quoting Charlie. Sometimes I think about going up to the big tower in the middle of the campus with a deer rifle and shooting people. End quote. Uh, why was he not put on a psych hold? Right. That's why this doctor's a fraud. So, guys, this whole massacre could have been prevented. He's reaching out. Like, he's literally he's telling you, li- I'm Charlie do this shit. is literally reaching out for help a and not receiving it. We are at fault. A psychologist or in a my opinion, worth of a shit would have said, that's not a good thing. Let's get you in a hold. Let's get some serious work done on you. You are threatening lot. You're threatening people's lives. Yours or others. You're threatening lives. You should not be. You need an evaluation. Dr. Healy didn't feel that way, and he felt that Charlie was sane and did not pose any direct threat. But he was oozing violent, hostile tendencies, and he's a muscular, but he was not a threat. Come on, contradict yourself more in your fucking book so you made money off the murder of fucking innocent people. Mm -hmm. Douchebag. Patrick's hot take. I agree. <laughs> this whole massacre could have been prevented. How many of these stories have we done where things could have been prevented if certain people had done their jobs along the way? Dr. Heatley is my nemesis right now. <laughs> I'm sure his family would disagree because they're probably living the large life because he probably made millions. No, I don't think they made millions. He did. But I mean, he wrote a book. I guarantee it. I doubt it, but whatever. Well, anyways... Charlie refused to settle for mediocrity, and he refused to settle for the mediocre person that he felt that he had become. He not only let himself down, but he felt that he had let down the two women, the only two women that depended on him the most. The two most important people in his life. Kathy and his mother. Yeah, the the only two people in his life that mattered. He had to act. And so he did, guys. He did. Just in a way that no one thought or no one could have seen coming. and I disagree. Someone very blatantly could have seen it coming because he literally fucking said he thinks about doing it. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
110%. So there was one human being on the planet that could see it coming. Absolutely. And we're going to find out the horrors that Charlie committed right after this break. Charlie did some thinking and writing, of course. Of course. And he had made a very dangerous decision to end his suffering in the most horrific of ways, as we will see. Friends of his during this time would later note that after years of seeing Charlie as just a nervous wreck, he was suddenly at peace, like he was having fun and hanging out. He had nothing else to be conflicted about for the first time ever in his life. He had no future to worry about. Exactly. He knows Mm. knows the end. Mm -hmm. It's close. Yeah. On July 31st, 1966, Charlie dropped his wife off at her part-time job and went shopping for supplies, including a hunting knife and some, uh, um, (laughs) some tins of Spam before picking up his mother and taking her out to see a matinee, a movie. After bringing his mother back home to her apartment, Charlie returned home to where he typed a letter. It's a long, rambling letter to no one in particular. But in the letter, Charlie tries to explain his future actions amongst Many other things that I'm just not even going to go into. I'm sure it was nonsensical all the way across the board. He states, quote, It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly, and she's been fine as a wife, as been fine a wife to me as many as any man could hope for. To ever have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it's selfishness or if I don't want her to face the embarrassment that is my actions. That's what it is. That would surely cause her. At this time, though, the prominent reason in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world worth living in and am prepared to die. And I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible, end quote. That was the only part I felt was okay to share. Because he's justifying his thought to kill his wife. It was a suicide note. Well, yeah, obviously. But he's basically saying, I don't want you to think I snapped on her. She did nothing wrong. She's innocent. She loved me. She was wonderful. I just don't want her to live with guilt or embarrassment or shame for what I'm about to do or the pain of me being gone. He's like, he's acting like he's doing her a favor, basically. I know. It's so weird. At 8.45 p.m., Charlie left his home to pick up Kathy from work. He drove back to her home, their home. Exhausted from a full day's work, Kathy changed and tucked herself into bed. She was so tired that she didn't cause a fuss when... Charlie told her that he was going out for a bit, but he would be right back. So, picked her up from work, dropped her off, put her in bed. Yeah. I was like, I'm going out. She's asleep. Yeah. Charlie then headed to his mother's apartment nearby. His mom was surprised to see her son show up at that late hour, of course. 
but she had no second thought about letting her firstborn son inside who who saved saved her. her. Exactly. The last thing she ever imagined was that her son, the same son who had just saved her from an abusive marriage, would be there to kill her. But that's exactly what Charlie was there to do. He stabbed his mother in the chest before shooting her in the back of the head. Shit, okay. And it took a while, and she suffered, and it was awful. He then hoisted his mother onto her bed and sat down at her coffee table where he would write a note. The note said, To whom it may concern, I have taken my mother's life. I am very upset about having done it. However, I felt that if there is a heaven, then she is definitely there now. And if there's no life after, I have relived, relieved her of her suffering here on earth. The intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. My mother gave that man the best 25 years of her life. And she finally took enough of his beatings, humiliation, and degradation, and tribulations that I'm sure that nobody but she and he will ever know. He has chosen to treat her like a slut that you would bed down with accept her behaviors and then throw a penance in return. I am truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her suffering, but I think it was the best. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love that woman with all of my heart. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. Jesus. I know. It's like rapture shit. I know. (laughs) Like revelations fucking style story right there. Well, then he placed the note under the covers because he hoisted her mom's, yeah, his mom's on body on the bed and covered her up because he wanted to give her some privacy. And then Respect, he, some pride, he yeah, mm-hmm. and then he put her, um, put the note under there so it wouldn't get lost. So it was exactly with her when it was when she was found. Crazy, right? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Then he drove himself home. Charlie was rather upset that he had caused his mother some... Pain? Great deal of physical pain. Yeah. I mean, stabbed her and then shot her. Her death was far messier than he had anticipated. Oh, in his mind, he probably thought it was going to be real quick and clean. Well, how about don't kill her? (laughs) That would be a good start. But in his mind... (laughs) He is saving the two people he loves most in this world. He is saving them from what he is has been done to them already and what he is about to do. That therapist should have fucking like I'm gonna hold my comments on that. Anyways. <laughs> so because of the pain that he suffered to his mom, he promised himself that Kathy's deaths would be far cleaner. He learned his lessons basically. Yeah. Charlie arrived at his home. He silently crept back to the bedroom. Didn't want to wake her up. As his wife slept in their bed, he pulled down the covers just above her chest, and he stabbed his wife, Kathy, right in the heart. He even 
noted the freckles above her chest. Lovely. As in his note. Luckily, she never woke up and she didn't have to witness her husband killing her. She died peacefully in her sleep. I wouldn't say peacefully. She still violently died, but she died in her sleep at least. Still wouldn't call that peaceful. This is so freaking sad, dude. This is ridiculous. <laughs> like I knew a lot about this dude. I knew none of this shit. I told you. If you think you know, you don't know. Because well, I only knew about him from the law enforcement aspect. From mm-hmm. as a teaching point for the evolution of law enforcement response, but not his psychological profile and the bullshit he did. It's important to know this. Even I would think that as a police officer, they would teach you this above anything else, so you know how to get to him. Yes and you know? no, because we didn't, we used it as, and I've told you this, this is a very kind of sidebar, but teaching law enforcement response to an active shooter, there were four situations in U.S. history that changed the evolution of how you responded. This was the first one. The second one was McDonald's, like we talked about in San Ysidro. The third was the Hollywood bank robbery. San Ysidro. And the That's fourth right. was Columbine. Okay. They, yeah. have, they, were, they were different evolutionary steps. In the process, the, pro- the process of how law enforcement responds to an active shooter, it wasn't. I'm sure a lot of people broke down the psyche, like criminal profilers and negotiators and all that stuff. But for what we did, that didn't matter. It was it was more about how to respond and how it's changed over time to save and maximize saving lives versus why this is going on. Mm-hmm. In, in the thick of the moment, in those kind of situations, you're not worried about why. Your your sole purpose is to stop it. You don't give a shit about anything else. Do you think that it would make a difference if you were? No, because you know what? If someone, and I'll, I'll say this very confidently, if I was still in law enforcement, I was still responding to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If someone's in an active shooter situation and killing innocent people, let alone children, mm. first thing I'm trying to do is stop them from shooting at anybody. Oh, I don't give well. a fuck why they're doing it. I don't give a shit about their mentality. I don't care about how they feel. They're either putting the gun down or we're putting them down. Stop. Stop killing people. Right. Then afterwards, I would love to know what made them do it. But in the situation, I don't care. I just want you to stop by right. any means necessary. Okay, fair enough. So, <laughs> after... Random sidebar on our part, sorry. After um, he was certain that Kathy was dead, he once again sat down to write. Gotta write another note. That's his, that's his MO, right? Surprised they could find a note in his house. He kills him right. On his trusty typewriter, he wrote, quote, Similar reasons provoked me to take my mother's life also. I don't think the poor woman has ever enjoyed life as she's entitled to. She was a simple young woman who married a possessive and dominating man. So this is weird. This uh, Side note. This is weird. This is his wife's death note. And he's still talking about his mom. It clearly affected him to kill his mother. I I mean, I guess. (laughs) All of my life, until I ran away from home to join the Marine Corps, I was a witness to her being beat at least once a month. Still talking about his mom. Then, when she took enough, my father wanted to fight to keep her below the usual standard of living. I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I am the only one trying to do a quick and thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please see that 
all the worthless checks I wrote <laughs> this weekend. He's planning on yeah. writing some hot checks. Yeah. Are made good. Please pay off all of my debts. I am 25 years old and have never been financially independent. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. End quote. He even knows he's got mental issues. He does. And he reached out for help several times. It's a good thing the fucking college degree professor didn't fucking have any idea. Douche rocket. Sorry, that dude really pisses me off, man. Dr. Heatley. Really pisses me off. I'll remind you of his name. I don't even want to know his name. I want to Google his ass and email him. Then Charlie signed off with his name and waited till morning to execute the final part of his plan. At 5.45 a.m. on August 1st, Charlie called his wife in sick for work and then began packing up um, his combat kit or kill kit of sorts. Yeah, I don't know kit, what to call it. I call it a kill kit. Well, that's smart. He doesn't want anybody checking in on his wife while he's gone. He packed up sandwiches, an extension cord, flashlights, batteries, a gun cleaning kit, a transistor radio, a three-gallon jug of water, a jug of gasoline, ropes, a clothesline, a compass, an alarm clock, a pipe wrench, a change of clothes, and sunglasses. And, of course, his handy-dandy notebook and a pen. We'll touch back on that kit later. (laughs) I know what happens. We'll touch back on that kit. He left his home, and he first went to the back, uh, the bank, sorry, where he cashed $250 worth of checks before heading to Austin Rental Company, where he rented a dolly to help transport his supplies around. His giant heavy-ass bag or box or whatever he's got it in. From there, he then headed to Davis's hardware store, where he bought a machete, a locking pocket knife, and a reconditioned M1 carbine. I'm assuming that's a gun. So a reconditioned M1 carbine is a, is very much a gun. It's a, very much the M14, very similar style. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, very hefting hunting rifle. M1 carbine, that's not even a hunting rifle. I mean, it can be, but you ever watch those uh, like World War II movies or like Korean War movies where they have... I don't pay attention. It kind of looks, but you know it because it kind of looks like a uh, hunting rifle and they're firing, firing, and then it goes... And the thing flies out of it and they put another little clip in the bottom. That's mm-hmm. an M1. That's the, that's the, they don't, they didn't have magazines. They, what they call that's where the clip, the term clip comes from. You oh. put it in and it would fire like, what, I think it was like seven or nine rounds. And then the little metal thing would eject and would go Bing! every time. So like saving private Ryan, it's an M1 carbine. And finally he purchased an absolutely ludicrous amount of ammunition. So much so that the store owners took note. They're like, what's he doing with all this stuff? I would like, I would, I mean, just out of curiosity, I want to know what they consider that to be. However, Charlie explained that he was going on a hog hunting trip. And at that time, hogs were like plaguing. Oh, uh, they still are in central Texas. Yeah. And hog Texas. hunting is like, you don't even have to pay for that shit anymore because they're like, please go hog hogs because the javelina. If you've never yeah. been in a farm, you don't know hogs. The javelina in here in Texas will destroy everything, they will eat everything, they will destroy farms and ranches. He then made his way back home where he loaded his trunk 
with a Remington 700 hunting rifle with a scope, a four times scope. Four X, that's not that bad. A six millimeter Remington rifle, a 357 Magnum, and an old Luger pistol, an not M- to mention an M1. Yeah, I was about to say, and an M1. So he's yeah. got, so essentially that the M1 is intermediate range, probably, mm-hmm. probably doesn't have a sight on it. That Remington 700 used to have one. Law enforcement used to use it as their sniper rifles. It's, it's a bolt action sniper rifle. Can reach out and touch somebody. 357 is obviously personal defense. It can range. reach out and touch somebody. Probably a horrible use of words in this story. It really s- is. Story. Um, it's like Golden Girls meets. <laughs> but it's a true sniper rifle. It's not, I wouldn't go two miles with it, but a couple hundred yards easily. So Charlie threw on his khaki overalls and made his way to the UT campus. By the way, if you look up pictures of his body, which I do not recommend you do. By the way, he dies. And then, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, he has like eight layers of clothes under his hunting rifle cargo. Like, get up. It's crazy. Like, he came prepared for days. Mm-hmm. Days of this. Which, some people are like, oh, that's kind of weird. It if is you, weird. If you live in Texas... And you go outside on August 1st in anything more than a t-shirt and shorts, you're going to die. It is so hot. Well, pile on. I, th- that's, that's what, I'm what I don't understand. That's why I'm saying it's so weird to us because if you're not from Texas, you might not understand. Put it in context. On August or, or today, it was 107. Oh, you mean like it's. It was 107 today. So yeah. the, And the heat index was like 112. Yeah. So wear eight layers of clothes outside when it's 107 degrees. Well, he threw on khaki overalls over all of his other layers, and he made his way to the UT campus. At 11.30 a.m., Charlie rode his dolly full of weapons through the entrance of the main building, also known as the Texas Tower. Looking much like a maintenance man, the receptionist in the front office, she didn't, didn't even bat an eye as Charlie entered the elevator. He, he'd been around the campus for years. He yeah. knew what the maintenance years guys looked like. He knew how they ruined. It's probably why he got the dolly. You know what I mean? On the 27th floor, the elevator stopped. Charlie now had to haul the rest of his gear up three flights of stairs to the 29th. Because <laughs> remember, I said there's 27 floors. Yeah, you got to go the stairs to the 29th. you got to walk the stairs. To the In eight layers of clothes. Yeah. In August. Which he did. In Austin, Texas. Okay. When he reached the observation deck, he was greeted by 51-year-old receptionist, Edna Townsley. Like the previous receptionist, Edna had just assumed he was a maintenance man. So she, because she's a precious human, she just strolled on over and, to meet him and introduce herself. And she was like, hello. Hello, honey. Well, Charlie then just took the butt of his rifle and hit Edna right in the eye socket and broke it. Ooh, that's painful. Yeah, he's a horrible dick. Well, she didn't die instantly, but she was clinging to life and in a world of pain, and she would later die from her wounds because he beat her more times than that. I just don't want to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, soon after... 
five members of the Garber family came walking up the stairs trying to make their way to the observation deck to see the sights. They were all, five members were visiting their sister, uh-huh. which she was attending college yeah, there, yeah, and was, she just wanted to, they wanted, wanted to, to see, see the, the sights. tower, right? Go up with the tower, see what it looks like. And his wife. Which people and, still do to this day. Ugh. Anyways, Charlie heard them coming up the stairs and opened fire. Three members of the family were shot to death. Charlie then barricaded the door to the reception area where he was yeah. holding up and um, before going out onto the observation deck. That way no one else you know, could get in. He spread out all of his guns and ammo, and at about 10 minutes before noon, he fired his first shot into what was a mall below. Yeah. His first shot was very intentional. It's awful, guys. I'm so sorry. But he shot an 18-year-old pregnant mom uh, named Claire Wilson right into her womb before shooting her boyfriend who was walking next to her Thomas Ekman in the head. After killing and wounding several people in the mall, Whitman began to target the nearby businesses on Guadalupe Street. He had a, a good overview of like all the surrounding feet. areas. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're 30 stories up here. Callously wounded or killed innocent people as they wandered off to lunch, like from work or class. He's I mean, far enough away, crazy. they're not really hearing the commotion out there. They're just walking out of a building and he's picking them off as they walk out down the street. The police were immediately alerted that there was an active shooter only minutes after Charlie fired the first shot. They arrived quickly on the scene. But at least one of the police officers that we know were killed in gunfire. According to Britannica.com, most of Charlie's casualties occurred within the first 15 minutes of opening fire, which I find interesting, seeing as he was actively shooting at people for almost two hours. That seems like a lifetime. But I have an explanation. It's target density. What's even more interesting to me is that as the police and first responders started arriving on the scenes, they were joined by private citizens armed with their hunting rifles. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's Austin, the early 1960s. It's Texas in general. Everybody's gone. Cops are running around back then with just pistols. What are they going to do to a hunting rifle? By now... All of Austin knew that the sniper was in the observation deck of the tower. So there's no doubt that women encountered massive fire from the ground. This caused him to eventually take refuge behind the, like behind where he was firing in the observation deck. That's what I'm saying is the cops, most cops back then, I don't think they carried anything other than a handgun, Mm -hmm. maybe a shotgun. They're going to do shit from down there. Everybody else is showing up with hunting rifles. Eventually, everyone knows where he's at. Everyone's just going to start shooting at this dude. So he's going to have to back off. Like, Well, yeah, he took refuge behind the observation deck walls, which thankfully limited his targeting ability. Well, that and my, my, what the comment I made earlier when you had said that was target density. What I mean by that is uh, it, it's, a, it's a military law enforcement term that some people are familiar with, but 
when you have an active shooter situation like that, everyone's going about their business when you first start firing. So it's a target rich environment, if you will. Like there's just people everywhere. As the firing starts, people run away. They don't go in that area. So you have less and less and less and less targets to shoot at. That's what I mean by target and density. Then, and, then. and then on top of that, you're getting return fire now. Because it's mm-hmm. the first cop, I guarantee you, the first cops rolled up, he was shooting at them. Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to slow their response. But then everyone else is showing up firing back at you. So you don't, you can't pop out and take as many shots. So that's why the majority of his murders occurred so early on yeah. in his spree. People left the area and then he's getting shot at at the same time. So he can't take as many shots. <laughs> Although Charlie's assault was slowed. He showed no signs of ever stopping. He's like, fuck you, I'm, this is, I'm done. This is I'm, t- I'm riding this me. out. I'm riding this out. He had enough ammo and supplies to last him for days, if need be. But that's something that the citizens of Austin, as well as the police, would simply not allow. So before we get to the takedown, it's important to mention that the 1966, there was no such thing as a SWAT team. Nope. There was no SWAT team. In fact, it was because of this incident in Austin that a SWAT team was formed, which I had no clue. Which is why it was taught. And that's why Patrick, yeah, I had learned. It was was twofold. It was the first formation of a SWAT team or a critical response team. And it also started the trend of carrying high caliber rifles in some patrol cars or with certain officers. Mm-hmm. to respond to something like this. Because they were literally responding with fucking revolvers. Crazy. And they weren't... Then they put a team together, which is where SWAT came from. It wasn't SWAT at the time, but they put a team together to respond to incidents that a normal patrol car couldn't respond to. Wait to hear this, Patrick. I cannot wait for you to hear this. Okay, so with all that said, local law enforcement had to come up with a rather unconventional counter-strike. Okay? Always. They needed an element of surprise in order to apprehend Whitman. Law enforcement learned that the university's janitorial staff, they were well-versed in the maintenance tunnels running beneath the whole campus to include the main tower. So they were hanging out with the janitorial staff, and they were like, okay, what do you know? (laughs) They're like, hey, somebody tell me something that we can get there. And the janitorial staff was like, oh, there's tunnels below us. Yeah, exactly. They knew what's up. And they were like, bet, let's go. So it was via those tunnels that law enforcement officers, plus a man by the name of Alan Crum, who was an employee of the U- of UT, but he worked at the bookstore. <laughs> the bookstore dude was like, give me a fucking gun, bro. Exactly. And Love UT. <laughs> they were able to silently enter the tower together. Yeah. In the elevator ride up to the 27th floor, Alan Crum, he was deputized in the elevator ride. Oh, they, I'm sure that somebody on the you know the sheriff's department or something was like, we'd make this legal, you're a deputy. Yep. You swear to open it, whatever. He was deputized in the elevator ride and given a service weapon. They made it legal. I died. In case he had I was to like, shoot oh him. Oh my God. In case he had to shoot him, they made it legal. I had no clue. Anyways, Officer Ramiro. Ramiro Martinez, Houston McCroy, and newly deputized Alan Crum finally arrived at the observation deck and surrounded Whitman, who had zero idea that they gained entry. 
because they were so silent in their entry. Good for them. Well, Martinez in Houston opened fire, hitting Charles Whitman Jr. in the face and chest. You would think that's a kill shot. No. Not for Whitman. He also had eight layers of clothing on. Even with a huge gaping hole in this dude's face, Whitman continued to raise his gun. And Martinez fired one final shot point-blank range, bringing the two hours of terror Charles Whitman had inflicted to an abrupt end. When all was said and done, Charles Whitman had killed a total of 14 people. 32 were wounded, and that number is excluding his wife and mother. They're never counted in his event. And trigger warning here, but I think it's important to mention that Claire Wilson was a pregnant 18-year-old that was shot in her womb. His first shot Mm -hmm. ever. She did survive. However, her baby would pass away in utero, and she was forced to give birth to her deceased child. Despite going through several surgeries, doctors were unable to repair the damage done to her uterus, and she was rendered infertile at 18. And she lost her baby, and she lost her boyfriend. She spent the rest of her life should have been the fall semester of her freshman year, relearning how to walk. Also, David Gumby, another victim of Whitman's, was shot in his kidney. He survived. It was later discovered during surgery that Gumby had only one functioning kidney to begin with, and that the kidney he was shot in had been destroyed with shrapnel. Over the years, he suffered horrific pain and underwent dialysis before finally, in 2001, it was learned that the damage to his organs was going to officially cause him to go blind. God, that's 35 years later. Yeah, and he was an older man by that time. After years of battling ongoing health issues, Mr. Gumby decided that he would just go ahead and discontinue dialysis, which meant death. He was just done. Mr. Gumby died in 2001, 22 years. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. 50, I'm sorry, 35 years after the incident. His cause of death was, and this makes me happy, his cause of death was listed as a homicide. Good, because he was murdered. Yeah, he was. I tell you these two stories because the pain and devastation Charles Whitman caused did not just last for 20 minutes or so back on August 1st of 1966, but the repercussions of his actions destroyed the lives of many for years to come. I was going to say, that's not even the, that's not even the psychological destruction that was done to hundreds, if not thousands of people on that day in that area. And we can only assume that that is the kind of pain that he meant, meant to inflict. Oh, yeah. I mean, he can write all his letters in the world. He can say all the things he wants to. He, this was beyond intentional, right? This was like so premeditated that you can't be like, oh, this was a suffering. No, you, you wanted to inflict pain. But that leads us to our next point. Why? 
Why would Charles go from a devoted husband living in suburbia, America, a devoted son who rescued his mother from an abusive father, turn into a monster who not only massacred people, but set out to do as much harm as possible? Like, not even massacred. Like, the point you brought up, the way you tell the story, his first shot was so beyond intentional Mm -hmm. that it was, it was, it was, you could have shot anybody. There were probably hundreds, if not Aimed. thousands, of people Aimed walking for the around. Womb. You shot a pregnant woman in her pregnant mm-hmm. stomach. Like you did the most evil fucking act. Yeah. You could think of. Well, I guess it's a possibility that he was evil, or perhaps there was some was chemical imbalance. I mean, he was fucking crazy. Let's get into it. Whatever the reason, I found this next part extremely interesting. Okay. Okay. With the permission of Charles Sr., his abusive father, right? An autopsy was conducted on his son's remains. His brain had been damaged by the shotgun shot to his head that the officers (laughs) inflicted. Um. During the autopsy of his brain, despite the damage, the coroners detected a tumor. It was an unobtrusive little yellow-gray blob the size of a walnut that was draining blood supply from other areas of the brain and pressing against his amygdala. Okay. His what? Okay. And for those not well-versed in neuroscience like myself, the amygdala is the part of the brain that relates to fight or flight response. And according to, of course, daddy, Ryan Green, as well as other neurospecialists, it's been argued that it was this pressure that led to Whitman's violent outbursts and ultimately to the events in the tower. Like an impulse control, frontal load damage. So... What I'm going to tell you from my research, which is fairly extensive at this point, and I hate to say it. Yes, it's impulse control. It's um, like damage control. It's all that. Like if when so, not only did he have damage from head injuries, mm-hmm. he also had a tumor, which was affecting brain function, and. Decision-making, impulse control, right and wrong. Well, to add to this tragedy, (laughs) Patrick, it seems as though this tumor was caused by some blunt force trauma to his skull, possibly a buildup of scar tissue that didn't heal properly, formed into a tumor, a cancerous cancer, brain cancer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A tumor that started eating away at his whole response control. His brain and then therefore his neurological response. Absolutely. Charles Sr., of course, denied any blame or wrongdoing. Yeah, he didn't beat the shit out of his kid, so he knocked him unconscious and almost killed him. Before, I just have so much to say, but nothing at all. I know. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Do you have anything... To say before I move into our list of victims that I would love to read out. Not really. Yeah, I, I, don't know, I guess because before you get into the names, as I'm thinking about it, you know, we always talk about 
every every case you and I always kind of talk about what caused it. Nature versus nurture. And this is a weird one because I feel like this guy was born good. Like you see it in his early or life. Or normal. Or normal. He was trying to do the right things. He was mm-hmm. trying to live up to expectations. He was trying to do all these things. I think he was nurtured to an extent. And then I think like we always talk about, you know, he was nurtured and he was put so much stress that he hit a breaking point. But he had traumatic head injuries. Like his like science said it. He had trauma to his brain enough that the scar tissue didn't heal right, which caused a tumor. That tumor, therefore, you know, helped get to these actions. But to, to that point, like, I don't think this guy was evil to start. Mm-mm. Obviously, his ending was horrific and evil as shit. For any, I think this is kind of like a old generation term, but for any guys out there that think it's right to beat the fuck out of your sons, please don't. You know? Don't it. can have it. long-lasting damage that you don't think it will. Don't hold them to a standard of perfection we've that done, you can't even we've done <laughs> hold to. Dozens, Stop! Do, we've done dozens and dozens of episodes. Yeah. And almost every single one of them has some sort of head trauma. And probably 75% of that head trauma was caused by a father or a parent. We're tired of doing these episodes, guys. Just stop doing it. The two themes that we see running through are the head trauma, mm-hmm. usually caused by a parent, or the lack of people doing their fucking job. Social workers in some situations, court systems in other situations, this fucking psychiatrist in this one. Dr. Heatley. <laughs> the dude literally told him he's going to go do what he did. Yeah. But anyway, as always, in Evil Pudding style. We digress. We digress. Well, one, we digress. And two... <laughs> We always want to not praise the monster. No. We want to tell the story in remembrance. To correct the situation. To correct the situation. And then we want to remember the victims. Stop it from happening. We always want to remember the victims. And I know you have the list of everyone that was involved with what's going on. So by all means, let's, let's get to the memorial part of it. So prior to the tower shootings, the deaths were Margaret Elizabeth Whitman. She was only 43. She was a mom. God, Pat, that She was 18 when she had him. She she was a year older, two years older than you. I haven't had a birthday yet this year. Don't age me that much. So that was his mom. Uh, Kathleen Francis Whitman, the shooter's wife. She's 23. I mean, he was only 25 at the time of this. They were young. And then, God, sorry. I know, it was rough. The UT Tower shootings. Here are the victims. Edna Elizabeth Townsley. She was 51. She was a receptionist. She was bludgeoned about the head with Whitman's rifle and then shot in the back of the head. There was Mark Jerome Garber, Marguerite Lamport, baby boy Wilson. That was Claire Wilson's unborn child. Claire Wilson was 18 years old. Dr. Robert Hamilton Boyer. Thomas Frederick Eggman, if I'm not mistaken, that was Claire's boyfriend. Okay. Robert Hamilton Boyer, Karen Joan Griffith, Thomas Aquinas Ashton, Claudia M. Rutt, Harry Walchuk, and Officer Billy Paul Speed. That's a lot of people. Too many people. That's just the ones that were actually... Too many, and you know that more were affected after, you know. Who knows? There there was a lot more that probably lived bad lives or lived rough lives after that, just from the mental side of it. Yeah. 
Could you imagine being in one of those situations? You know there were people in those situations that were standing next to. And said, I can't do this anymore. The pregnant girl and her boyfriend. And watched that happen. Yeah. Not even if they said they couldn't do it. They watched that happen. And they're going to live the rest of their life like, I saw that, first of all. Yeah. And then, how did I, you know, survivor's guilt is what yeah. I'm looking at was going towards. Like, that survivor's guilt. Like, how did it not, how was it not, it was pure luck that it wasn't me. I hate that. It's awful. <sighs> Dude was a legitimate monster. And we talked about him, like monster. we said in the beginning. A monster that was created. Yeah, he was a created monster. He wasn't born a monster like Bundy or some of these other ones we've covered. But he he changed the face of law enforcement. He was the reason SWAT started. He was the reason in why fact, law enforcement carried high caliber rifles. In fact, law enforcement um, calls him patient zero. He was, he was the original. He was yeah. the original. You know, I talked about earlier him and then, you know, San Isidro responded. Changed. But I don't want to give them that much credit. No, but they changed how law enforcement responded. One of the most famous ones is the Hollywood bank robbery, which those not familiar with that, basically LAPD didn't have – these guys were bulletproof vests and hopped up on tranquilizers, and LAPD couldn't penetrate them, so they gave them a blank check. That's where the M4 or the Army rifle became the standard SWAT rifle. Yeah. And everybody knows Columbine. That changed everything. The, the old SWAT tactic was show up, wait, talk to them, then go in. Columbine changed that directive. They don't even wait for SWAT anymore. I mean, it's just, it's a very famous story for many reasons, right? Mm -hmm. It's famous for the evolution of law enforcement. It's famous in science. Mm -hmm. It's famous in true crime just because, like, this dude was a good dude who tried hard and then just one day changed and didn't. Please don't beat up your kids, guys. Please just stop. (laughs) I mean, yeah, don't beat your kids up. (laughs) Breaks my heart, man. More importantly, pay attention to warning signs. Yeah. Someone comes to you with a problem, don't blow it off. Yeah. Because they're obviously asking for help. If someone asks, if someone's coming to you for something, if you can't help them, send them to someone there or talk to them or take them to someone that can because this dude was if asking someone, for help. Well, if someone says, this is my plan to do A, B, and C. All right, bro, let's go get a beer and talk about this. Yeah, exactly. And then we'll talk about what we need to do afterwards. <laughs> We're but don't gonna blow fix it off. This. No. Don't say, ah, oh, whatever. Because <clears throat> it can have a ripple effect, a butterfly effect, if you will. It can have a ripple effect that changes hundreds of thousands of lives. I had no, did you have any idea? I know you know his story, but did you have any idea about his like real story? No, I had no idea about his real story. I'll tell you, I knew his story from the time he walked into that building. Oh, yeah. I knew he had a kit. I knew all the stuff he brought with him. Like he brought survival stuff and like, you're talking about the wrench and all these other things. He was planning, and the gasoline, he was actually planning on building a barricade, like a booby mm-hmm. trapping this barricade and stuff. He just didn't have the time because he just went to work. Yeah. Because the receptionist, from what I remember, if I can't remember correctly, I, but I think I remember. Bless her, Edna. Edna threw his plans into a wrench. Yeah. Because he just He expected, didn't realize there was a receptionist he didn't know, yeah, on he top. Thought there was a receptionist on the first floor. She threw a plane into his thing. He was going to booby trap everything, so if anyone came up, mm-hmm. that's what the gas was for, the, the, the wrench and all that kind of stuff, the wire, the rope. He was going to booby trap shit. Good job, Edna. But she uh, she was there and he was like, fuck. You know what I mean? So she threw a wrench in that. But he, I didn't know anything about, other than he was a Marine and an excellent marksman, I didn't know anything about um, the other stuff. He, he's, he's talked about in the marksman world as one of those because very many Marines are famous for those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Lee Har- not, not Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald. He's another Marine that is highly talked about because of their training. Mm. You know, he shot Kennedy from like a mm. mile away. 
This guy was another one. But did record. he? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, the question is, was or he was the, the aliens? Was he the only one? Is the question. He yeah, did. That's true. But I know. No, I so saw. Yeah, I, I didn't know. Like always with you, I didn't mm. know half the shit about the story that I thought I knew. I'm so glad that I could bring to light. That's why I always enjoy when you do your deep dives because now we have to. We we need to stop this before it starts, right? That's my goal. <laughs> well, we just want to bring awareness. Like we, I don't know if we can stop anything, but we want to bring awareness so that. No, we can't do it. No one listens to us. Other someone hears one. this and they see a warning sign, or someone hears this and they want to make take action, or someone hears this and they want to do something with their life to help it. Awesome. Anyways, guys, we love you so much. Be good to each other, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>